Did you know the ATC has a directory? If you do wilderness, adventure, or experiential therapy, list yourself for free. Our goal is to help clients and clinicians find each other. No more searching for a referral in another state or country. Connect quickly and easily on adventuretherapycollective.org. Join our free directory and get seen. Welcome to the Adventure Therapy Collective Podcast. Our offices are mountains, rivers, and the woods. Climbing, hiking, and paddling are just what the doctor ordered. How, how often do most people do podcasts that are podcast hosts? Gosh. I know some people go weekly or monthly. I think we need some, some boundaries about actually getting things done. But sponsors, if you're out there... <laughs> And uh, if you want to pay someone to not work very hard <laughs> or at all. Now, I was listening to the Very Bad Therapy podcast, the new one, mm-hmm. and I don't remember what episode number they were on, but I was like, this is not that old. And they've done like over a hundred of these things. I'm like, what are we on, like eight or nine? This could be episode 10 almost. I don't know. I'm oh, always- hitting the double digits. We should have yeah. a party. We're going to take a couple months off to celebrate. <laughs> we'll see you all in 2022. <laughs> uh, no, I re-listened to a few episodes I had a long drive to do the other day. And um, now they're just so cool to, to bring in your friends and get to listen to them. It's been so fun. And we do have some things teed up for the for the future and some great people and some what we hope are interesting ideas. So you listen uh, and like get excited when you hear them and then cringe when you hear your own voice. Like, ah, why do I sound like that? And as someone who's recorded a lot of my own therapy sessions, what I do wrong in the podcast is the same thing I do wrong in therapy that I've had coaches and supervisors like pull me up on. So I'm like, I haven't even deliberately practiced that. So, so you're uh, like therapy coaches that have told you these things are going to listen to the podcast and be like, why do we even bother? He's, he's fired. We're getting a new uh, acolyte to work under us. Yeah. He's a lost cause. I do, <laughs> I do this thing, right? A lot of times therapists, we have something teed up that we want to talk about, right? And that can interfere with how we listen to somebody else. Cause we're only thinking, I can't wait to get what I, this next question is going to be flipping amazing. And so the client finishes talking, and as I start to ask the next question, my head goes, "Will validate what they said." So I've so I've I've like opened the gates of a question, and then I've added all this nonsense, and then I finish with a totally different question. So I do this rambling of not really making any sense. So I have to work on. Yeah, that sounds pretty much exactly like the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know I do that too. Damn it. Yeah. So the client's sitting there going, I have no idea what this, this guy's talking about. (laughs) So we've actually wanted to do this episode of the podcast for a while. I think it was one of the first episodes that we talked about, but then we were like, we should kick this can down the road because we want to interview some other people, bring in people that are actually some experts and not just the same two guys that everyone hears every episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and like all good academics, we're going to talk about what we're passionate about, and uh, you have to listen. Well, what you're passionate about. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> Hi there, this is Ben Feynman. And Carrie Wida. From the Very Bad Therapy Podcast. We're trying to challenge the field of psychotherapy by talking about something most of us already know. Sometimes therapy sucks. Every other week, we talk with a new guest about their bad experience as a client in therapy, and then look at research and bring on experts to explore how we can do better by talking about our worst moments. Find us at verybadtherapy.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. But, but Will, so you're an adventure therapist, right? Yes. If you're an adventure therapist, why is it that you, you won't shut up about routine outcome monitoring. You talk about this more than you do adventure therapy and mm-hmm. psychotherapeutic common factors. And you talk more about these than adventure therapy. What the hell are these things? Why do you talk about them so much? How are they related? Tell me, like, tell us why we all need to know about these things and why you're so passionate and it's your 
main area that you like to lecture and share about? When I was working in the field and working in wilderness therapy, I knew I had a knack for engaging young people in something. I like, you know, playing around and messing around and playing games and and telling jokes. And um, I knew that young people at programs who tended to butt up uh, to be whatever we think resistant is to other staff tended to build sort of nice relationships with me. But whenever anyone asked me, how does adventure therapy work? I didn't really get it because people say, oh, it's the nature. Well, I spent a whole lot of time at summer camp and still managed to get in trouble and and have some some issues that good therapy sorted out. Right. So I really have always been interested in, well, how does therapy actually work? I've also had my fair share of bad therapy. And that's what I wanted to know. And I stumbled across the work of Scott Miller, who many of uh, many people who know me know, um, I strongly urge all of you to uh, go and listen and read his work. But in the 1930s, there was this psychologist, Saul Rosenzweig. And to put it in context, in the 1930s, we had psychoanalysts and behaviorists. Behaviorists thought therapy was dangerous. Psychoanalysts thought behaviorists are treating people the same way we train a dog to poop outdoors. It's inhumane. Um, So they were butting heads with each other, just the same way that Crest and Colgate were butting heads about which toothpaste is better. And the psychologist saw- you were saying a guy named Creston Colgate. And I was like, that'd be a good therapist name. (laughs) Yeah, I go see this therapist, Creston Colgate. He's an expert in behaviorism. He will clean up your life. (laughs) (laughs) And remove plaque and put the tooth together. So so Rosenzweig wrote this piece uh, and it is a, it's a brief, but I've read it multiple times. I don't really know what it says. So much people much smarter than me have told me that what Sol Rosenzweig was saying in the 1930s was we have to stop these arguments because I think the factors that make psychoan- psychoanalysis work and that makes behavioral approaches work are the same factors. There's nothing more special than the two of them. You fast forward to the 1970s, the first meta-analysis of outcomes. That is, you get a collection of studies, you put them together. What they found was therapy worked. So this shut up the behaviorists who were saying psychotherapy is dangerous. It also was a kick in the ass to therapists to start researching what they do. We had about 60 different types of therapy at that point. And at this point, think about toothpaste. Now we get fluoride. So now Crest and Colgate are both using, guess what, the same exact factor, to, but they're differentiate themselves. Mine's better. No, mine's better. And then you had about 60 therapies. And at the end of that article, they said, we could not find any distinguishable di- difference to support the claim that one is better than the next. That doesn't mean they don't work. It means they all tended to work the same. So this idea of common factors was again, that was the finding of the biggest study of our time. That's 1977. So most people ask, well, certainly we've got better. We have more diagnoses. We now have nearly a thousand different types of toothpaste in our field. There's nighttime toothpaste, daytime toothpaste, sensitive, sensitive. That's what I was thinking with your analogy is like, oh, I've got one for gingivitis. I've got one for tooth decay. I've got one for whitening my teeth because I drink too much coffee because I never stop working. And, uh, but no, you're pre-planning for that. (laughs) There's my black coffee going down. Yeah. So we have EMDR, ACT, DBT, CBT, and each of these camps. and, And I like the idea of thinking them like a camp. They all think they have the answer, but the research tells us otherwise. And I'm an advocate for taking therapy outdoors. I'm an advocate for doing therapy in a canoe. I'm an advocate for doing anything at all that will engage the person. So any toothpaste that makes somebody brush their teeth is probably the right toothpaste. And if it leads to an adverse effect, they're not gonna use that toothpaste. So it's not that adventure therapy is not the perfect therapy for this one person. That absolutely could be the case. It's that we can't on a broad brush really believe that we are more special because we're outdoors or because we have active bodily engagement, because the evidence 
isn't really there to support it, but it's not there to support any other therapy either. So in one sense, I found common factors actually liberating because when anyone tells me adventure or outdoor therapy is the alternative to the big kid therapies, there's no, there's no alternative because they all can work the same. They're all just as effective. Now this feels damning when we're advocates for an experiential type of work. It shouldn't be damning. It's liberating. It's, it's the stamp that we should be able to do this work and we're not relying on any more evidence to support that we should be able to take therapy outdoors because the factors that are likely to contribute to our outcomes are the same as CBT. It's in the relationship. It's in how the client makes meaning from the rituals or techniques or games or interventions we use. You know, um, otherwise robots would do this work. So it's all about context. So when we say things like, well, it's nature, being outside is good for stress reduction. Uh, green exercise is really good for you. All those things are true. But that's the, that's the story we tell about why we take therapy outdoors. So we have a really good ritual. By the way, almost none of those studies are done in any type of clinical context. So we're taking research from somewhere else, throwing it into therapy. By the way, everybody does this. CBT takes mindfulness from an Eastern religion, plops it into therapy. Look at that, evidence-based practice. I, I remember clearly when I was doing my master's degree in social work, that this was something that my clinical instructors taught us. They taught us about the common factors and they taught us that the type of therapy you select doesn't really matter. What matters is the relationship and these core components. And then it seemed like after that, like that was like a checkbox. They said that it was forgotten. And then they jumped into teaching us which therapy works for each problem. So like CBT is what you use for depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Motivational interviewing is what you use for substance abuse. This is what you use for this. This is what you use for that. And it seems like that's kind of common across the board. Like we, we know this, this is a thing that you're saying started like coming about in the thirties and then was really shown more definitively in the seventies, but, but we can't seem to latch onto it. No, this is the really tricky part. And, and, and this is, it, is, it's not a ad is, and I lost my thought. Just like in your sessions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help. Oh, I was so close to, you bring up a, it's such an important point about how we train people. And like you said, if you are thinking about the diagnosis, right? This is for depression. This is for anxiety. This is for trauma. This is the, the stranglehold that the medical model has on our field, right? And what we know from the, from the available research, and let me I'll back up for one second. The two most replicated findings in psychotherapy research. The first one is that therapy works. If for anyone listening um, and for you, Daniel, think of a therapy that has simply been like, that's oh, gone. It disappeared because it's no longer effective. It's like, think of a toothpaste that disappears. We have no idea, right? Obviously, there's rebirthing, gay conversion therapy, yeah, and these things, things that are called therapy that simply aren't therapy. They're unethical. They don't fit the criteria of what therapy is. The same as like bloodletting was considered medicine. No, it's gone. It wasn't. Absolutely. And bloodletting disappeared because people did research and they followed the findings. Bloodletting is probably what killed George Washington. Uh, similarly, uh, we used to give people smoke enemas for drowning. That's where the saying blowing smoke up someone's ass came from, was because that was the evidence-based practice of how to resuscitate someone from drowning. The British Royal Humane Society was created to put smoke enemas along the rivers to bring people back to life. Not joking. So we have to follow randomized controlled trial with this. Oh, I wouldn't want to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be randomized into that one. <laughs> but so if we're really following the evidence, the most, most uh, replicated finding is therapy works. The second most replicated finding is the common factors is that when we compare in a study two psychotherapies against each other, we typically find no difference in outcomes. 
now. That What that means to third-party payers is that they should choose the cheapest therapy and the quickest. That's not what that finding says. That finding says we suck at choosing which therapy is for the right person. And the way we treat people is by the diagnosis. Don't forget that it was only in the 1970s that homosexuality was removed from the DSM. This is hardly a book of epic ethical stance, right? And it's also the book that maintains our professionality next to medicine. So the reason we keep coming up with treatments and think about the word, we have diagnosis and treatment, is because we have to fight for equal standing next to medicine. And so that is the stranglehold that we have on our field. And I, and I think a lot of the, the pioneers of our work, I, as a social worker, I look to Jane Addams. Jane Addams was pressured and pressured by philosophers and educators to write what she does, how she does it, and give it a name, which she said, it's just called being useful. Yeah, that was a huge battle back then between the psychiatric diagnostic part of social work, the, the Mary Richmond and Jane Addams in the kind of community-based systems, whole house world. And mm. it seems like we're still there. We're still stuck on it. So, so when I think about adventure therapy, I think of the common factors as it doesn't mean we're more effective. And there, there's another damning finding there. And we're going to get to that in a sec, I think. But it's that there's no reason not to go outside. And the common factors are, they are challenging um, at first because it tells us that we're not more special than anything else. Well, it seems like that's the part that's really threatening because I I hear you that this is liberating stuff, but when you go to people that have spent their whole life, their whole career trying to test and trying to demonstrate and show that their thing really works, and then they build their group of people, their their cadre of folks who have been trained in their method. And you go to those folks and say, actually, hate to tell you this, but CBT for anxiety and depression, it probably isn't better than other forms of therapy. Then, I mean, that's really off-putting. You just told the people who spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars being trained, like, yeah, you didn't need to do this. Yeah. And there's, there's, that's right. Donald uh, Meishenbaum, I would highly recommend listening to his interview with Ben and Carrie on the bad, very bad therapy podcast. One of the, one of the people that was a leading mind of CBT, which he said he was informed the most by his mother who would talk him about challenging, distressing thoughts and, and all these things. But he looks back and in, on his career, and I'm paraphrasing, and I know I'm speaking on behalf of someone else, which I don't want to do. So go listen to that podcast. But he looks back and goes, oh, my gosh, the hype of this is ridiculous. So he's I heard him interviewed on another podcast as well, where he was talking about similar factors. And it was amazing to me because people use CBT as kind of the argument against common factors, because that's the one everyone knows CBT for two specific diagnoses, depression and anxiety. And then one of the founders of this is like, no, actually go look at this stuff. It's really important. Dive into this common factors. One thing is, and the common factors about 20 years ago were taken way out of context. And everybody thought I do CBT, but I use a common factors approach. If it's common to all therapy, you can't do common factors. So adventure therapy has the same common factors as CBT. There's a therapist, some therapists are more effective or, or not. Well, there's some sort of practitioner, depending on your qualification, levels of experience, whatever. Some don't want to be called therapists. I get that. So you have a practitioner. You have a client. You have a, a rationale, a psychological rationale for why you're doing this work outside. And you have techniques associated to that rationale. And then there's the factor of hope and expectancy. The client feels like they're in the right place. And, and the relationship. What the technique is of those factors makes up less than 1% of the variance in outcomes across the board. We wow. know the relationship. We know empathy. We know that actually, if we, if we took 10 therapists and we measured all their outcomes, it wouldn't be that they're indoors or out that makes the difference. It would be typically how effective they are on average. Some therapists are simply better than others. 
And when you've, you've talked about that before, and I always think of Tony Alvarez because he's mm-hmm. been a mentor and he's a fantastic clinician. His approach is incredible. And I always think about, I'm like, yeah, if Tony did CBT or if Tony did adventure therapy or if Tony did psychoanalysis or if Tony did DBT or EMDR, he's probably going to be better than me at any one of those things just because he's an incredible therapist. And it's probably not those models. Absolutely. And, and I know for me, because I'm a nerd that's measured my outcomes, I'm a way better outdoor wilderness therapy expedition therapist than sitting on the couch. This is why the common factors are liberating. I would not want to tell you about my mother. <laughs> no psychoanalysis. <laughs> no, with no. Yeah. And so you don't, I, the common factors are liberating because we need to advocate that we're just as good as everybody else. We don't need to advocate that we're better. That would be an ev- evidence misinformed stance. Um, we don't have the evidence to support that. And then I wrote this paper with Nevin Harper and an insurance company in America picked up this paper and they said to us, well, if you're just effective, why should we fund you? To which my response to that would have been, why would you choose anything? You know, that's why I, I always say I care about evidence-based adventure therapists, not evidence-based adventure therapy, because we all know some therapists are better than others. Like we all inherently know that even if you work at the same agency, even if you're manualized, still some therapists are better than others. Here's another one that's crazy finding that I can't really wrap my head around. In psychopharmacology studies, some psychiatrists are more effective than others, even when they all prescribe the same medication. And I heard about this and it blew my mind because Ben and Carrie, a very bad therapy, shared this article as well. And it was an article where it looked at the, the, the prescriber common factors actually mattered more than the medication, I think. Is that what the article said? I think yeah. it was something along those lines. Do you remember who the authors were? I don't, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah, we'll pull it up. We'll put that in there. We'll put the Donald Meichenbaum interview mm-hmm. and anything else that we ramble about. Yeah, absolutely. And so think about that, that the alliance and the way a, a practitioner is in engaging people, no matter their qualification, all that stuff, that actually is the, the factor that matters the most. That is fascinating. And I think we'd all want to know that because- it means it's not about putting every person through our programs the exact same way. And while we all argue, we all tailor our interventions and they're individualized. We all say that in adventure therapy, this is actually really hard because rock climbing day is scheduled on rock climbing day. Whitewater rafting is scheduled on whitewater rafting day. Or we say uh, it's journal time. If a client doesn't care about journaling, get rid of it. And this is one of my call to actions in the Dodo Bird paper. And one reviewer really didn't like it. But just imagine if you if you journal, get a journal out and write down every intervention or activity you use that you think is essential to your work. Measure your outcomes. Then don't do one of those things. Measure your outcomes. You're likely to be just as effective. And that doesn't mean do nothing. It means... We, we overthink the, interven- the, the, the weight of the intervention, that we would be just as effective as people working outdoors or doing adventure things without group juggle or without journaling or without rock climbing. What, what it's saying is we put too much weight in the intervention. It's all we research all the time is, d- does this program work? It was delivered by 10 different therapists. What I'm interested in is what percentage of clients didn't get better why, what went wrong, and then what's the variance in outcomes across the therapists? We use this study, um, Massachusetts De- Department of Corrections, it's the Outward Bound study from the 60s. And it's a study that talks about, uh, was Outward Bound programming more effective at reducing recidivism than the traditional correction services? If you go to the way back of that thesis, and this is cited quite often as, as really one of the most strong cases for adventure therapy, outdoor adventure therapy for at-risk youth. You go to the back of that, they used three different outward bound schools. I don't remember the names of them. And one of them reported a 0% recidivism rate. 
that right off the bat is already a little bit curious, but stick with me for a sec. The next one was, let's say, 15%. And then the third school was in the 30s. The control group, treatment as usual, was also in the 30s. I think that one performed better than the one outward bound school. That left me thinking, not only am I curious about the 0%, but can you really make a claim that outward bound was more effective? It was on average. But why was this one school doing the same thing, same theoretical context, less effective than the correction service as usual? It makes me want to go back and look at that study too, because I've seen it cited and I don't, I don't know the specifics. It makes me think about like what are the other confounding factors hmm. and, and all that jazz. Um, but I also hear when you talk about this, when you're talking about the common factors and also having heard a number of our colleagues talk about like a strength of our field is in the way that it can engage some people, the people that it's a good fit for. And I mean, engagement, that's part of the common factors, right? So absolutely. It engage, so the engagement, engagement in the therapy is our best predictor of outcomes that we have across the board, across any therapy. So this sounds like you're making a strong argument for why we should use adventure therapy. Because if you're saying, okay, in a canoe, I can engage people better because I know that's my strength and that's the way that I can work with people, then it sounds like we're making a really good, strong argument. I mean, I know for me, I've worked with a lot of kids that were labeled oppositional and a lot of them could engage better getting out of the therapy office where they'd had struggles in the past. So it was contextual, but it seems like it does make a really strong argument for our niche that it's not going to do better at treating depression, but for some people, it might be a really good fit. And we we all inherently know this because one of the one of the similarities between both of our dissertations is why'd you get in the field? Oh, I'm a really outdoorsy person, and uh, outdoors was really healing for me, and I'd love to share that with other people. But I needed some qualifications, so I went to school and got some degrees. That's universal almost to all of us. Not many of us, or I was an outdoor guide, wanted to work more intentionally in a therapeutic way. Not many of us were at university in a uh, clinical uh, social work uh, class and the teacher went, oh, by the way, have you heard about adventure therapy? You all should go do that. And then they, you know, you leave the classroom, you go buy some Chacos and a North Face jacket and you're an adventure therapist. We all enter this, and this is the beauty of the common factors. We all enter this field because we know when we're at our best, that's why our conferences are so lively. Like with Nikki Treadway, like I've never, I have stepchildren, like I've probably held two and a half babies in my life, like none. And here I am in a workshop talking about adventure therapy with new moms and I'm holding a baby. And she's talking about, she made us all hold a baby to think about what is it like to be a mother with a newborn? How many babies in, did she bring? Like 20. <laughs> Real ones? No. <laughs> But of I'm course, just picturing Nikki out like uh, at a daycare. <laughs> but you know what was amazing is I had the only one that had batteries. So Captain ADHD can't sit still. My baby cried anytime I moved it, right? Like it made noise. So the whole time I was going, oh, sorry, sorry, that's interrupting. And you watch Nikki be at her best going, this is actually what it's like being, you're apologizing for the gift of life right? You're apologizing that you made this perfect, lovely little thing. And, but that to me gave me so much context in, I don't need to go now do adventure therapy with new moms, but Nikki does. She's incredible. That's why the context is so important. The common factors tells us we should not be all trained the same way. We should be encouraged to be flexible, to break the mold to do things that are that are that are challenging to the system and different because the system how we train people how we diagnose people has not really done a good job at taking the available evidence seriously so when i advocate for adventure therapy if that is the best tool to engage this person absolutely it should be on the table and people I really believe look at therapy 
like we, we, when people don't engage in therapy, we all roll out the usual suspects. It's the cost of therapy. It's uh, it's stigma associated with seek, seeking therapy. Uh, people don't believe it works. They don't believe our science. The issue with stigma is what therapy looks like has not changed since therapy was started. And adventure therapy and horticulture and surf therapy and forest therapy, adventure therapy, nature-based therapy, eco perspectives. This is new. It's exciting. Besides EMDR, it's like the most with or dance or music, like it's got active bodily engagement. It looks different, which means you can inherently reduce stigma if people don't have to go to the psychotherapy clinic. If they don't have to go to that that community uh, youth service that everyone knows that's where the troubled kids go. It looks different. And that way we can engage people. Absolutely. You bring up the piece of engagement. There's a double-edged sword there. If we believe that being adventurous or experiential is a better way to engage people, we will be blinded to finding out who's disengaged. And if we waste people's time when they're disengaged, that is going to lead that person to having a negative taste in their mouth when they think about therapy. And then we have more people who could benefit from any type of therapy, not go. So it's not that adventure therapy is better, but it is that we're another way to engage the disengaged. But if I look at my outcomes and see from my outcomes that I know that I engage people better using those techniques, then that's a viable path forward. A hundred percent. So I believe you. The, the different types of therapy don't matter that much. Um, not that it doesn't matter that you're, I mean, you have to be trained, but like what type of therapy isn't going to be better? And um, just, just a caveat what, there. That doesn't mean I can just do the Will Dobud therapy. I just okay. do whatever I want. It also <laughs> doesn't mean you can't just do what Carl Rogers says. Oh, I just do. Carl Rogers says the core conditions of change are unconditional positive regard, being genuine, uh, conveying empathy. That's good enough, right? No. What he means is when you do adventure therapy, you still have to have those core conditions of change. When you do CBT, you still have to do something. Just being on warmth being one of the common factors, right? Right. With warmth. Yep. So you, you still have to do something. Um, you still need an intervention to do. You can't just go aimlessly in the bush with with no, right? The common factor, having a psychological rationale for why you do what you do. Okay, okay. So I hear you. The type of therapy doesn't matter, but you have to have a rationale. You have to have a structure. However, it, it would make us better if we were like a specific profession. Like we're social workers and we know that we're the best therapists so we're going to have better right. outcomes. And since we have PhDs, we're better and we have better outcomes, right? No. Really? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> um, this is probably a more challenging finding to, to wrap your head around. And again, this has been replicated. And this one also pisses people off. Yes. Because uh, the master's level part is like an important part of the field. Yeah. And we have to question it because it, it, in, and this is where I would read Ben Caldwell's work. He has a book called Saving Psychotherapy. And also I would continue listening to the Very Bad Therapy podcast. And But, but it's also an important debate. Sorry to interrupt. But, no, no, uh, but in, in wilderness therapy specifically, because so much therapy is done by field guides and field staff. And then people are saying, well, that's not therapy. It's not a master's degree. Mm. But then we see that's where the interventions have. So it is a debate even in our subspecialty in adventure therapy and wilderness therapy and an international debate the 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 definition of adventure therapy utilized in the united states context is delivered by a mental health professional in australia i supervise organizations where they have people who are not necessarily meant what we would consider a mental health professional they don't have a license this and that but the issue with with training and and this and that it, it gets back to engagement. Some people are simply better at engaging people than others, and until you have your own data to know that, you won't know. So 
A big study just came out of the NHS in the UK that found that students on their placements were eliciting outcomes basically on par to the most experienced clinicians. Uh, Researchers Strupp and Hadley in the 1970s, they found that they could basically give people uh, what's like a weekend workshop training in relation, how how to build therapeutic relationships. And after that weekend, they were just as effective as the clinicians at the university clinic. But go back to the common factors and equivalent outcomes across therapies. How do we train people? Do this at this time. I super align with solution focused, even though I know it's no better or worse, but it's really good for who I am. It's pragmatic. I really like the way it uh, seamlessly goes into adventure therapy. So at the same time, that aligns with with who I am and the way I think like my psychology, the way I see the world. But if I train Daniel just to do solution focused therapy outdoors and you're going, but I'm going to do this CBT thing, which is fine. If I train you, ask the miracle question and then ask a few scaling questions and then ask for someone's best hopes and then look for exceptions, even though I prescribe that to you, I'm still, I'm probably going to be better than you at that. When it comes to training people, we train them in that less than 1% of variance of outcomes. When we should really be looking at interpersonal skills, how can we be culturally responsive? How can we hold um, somebody's pain and, and suffering in a way that conveys empathy. And I know we, we do that, and I got some training in that, but we aren't focusing as much on the core factors as we are, the diagnosis and picking the right treatment. It's a little refreshing to say, like, no, it's okay. We do still need people who are trained with master's degrees and bachelor's degrees and advanced degrees and everything else because you're not just working on the therapy, you're learning how to be, sustain yourself in the field. You're learning the laws of your field. You're learning the Mm -hmm. ethics of your field. So you're going and sure, you could maybe learn the skills quicker, but but it's still important that we have our fields. It's important that we have our identities. It's important that we have the research that we put in because these are the things that make our professions what they are, but also that it's a really important reminder that if I go and get six master's degrees, I'm not going to be better than someone else. Or I think of, I always think of Jen Jevertson, who's on TAPG for people that don't know her. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jen is an incredible adventure therapy practitioner. And she actually doesn't have an adventure therapy degree. She is an educator. And mm-hmm. oh, um, yeah. I still, I, I mean, it's just an example, but I, I think like, yeah, <laughs> she is a very good therapist without necessarily having that license. Uh, so just an example. We I crunched the numbers for a friend and it was a it was a small sample size so we have to take it off what it is. Absolutely no therapy training. But someone that has a strong connection to the outdoors, someone who's a professional in their job description that works in schools, also not an educator, a school-based police officer. I was going to say I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> we crunched their numbers. And his outcomes for his first year that we measured outcomes, again, small sample size, take that as as a limitation, were above average psychotherapy outcomes on a whole. So we put too much weight into qualification, but qualification protects our field. I am a social worker first, adventure therapist second. So we can't flip those around because Social workers doing bad adventure therapy is not only bad for adventure therapy, it's bad for social work. And not to open up the can of worms of some of the things I've written about this year, bad social work and bad adventure therapy, and and I'm saying bad as a loose term, not like ineffective, like unethical, coercive, things like that, things that hurt people, we then as advocates for social work and adventure therapy, have to answer to those questions when someone else asks us, are are you doing the same thing that this other person did? No. So the profession is the idea to to protect us. It's It's a way to hold ourselves to high standards. So anyone who notices a breach of confidentiality, having a water cooler conversation and totally unloading about a client and gossiping about them. Call that shit out. 
call it out and, and say, that's not on here. Anyone who sees uh, something that's unsafe practice, we've been hammered by, for this in the past, call it out. Say it, call it like it is, because what we don't want is what we're experiencing now on social media is getting hammered and dragged through the mud for the actions of a few in our field. But that's a conversation for another day. And uh, we've already scared people a little bit enough today, too. (laughs) So let me backpedal a little bit. You are talking about common factors and you're talking about all these important pieces. But I've also heard you rambling about deliberate practice and that's connected somehow what what is what is that and why do adventure therapy people need to think about this as well okay. and these are all tongue-in-cheek questions because will and i have written and presented <laughs> about these things <laughs> no but it's important to unpack these things because if something's behind a paywall or it's just a, a short sharing of an article on social media it's important to dive deeper into this and we're gonna get we're gonna scare our practitioners even more now Great. Big, big studies here. So big longitudinal, many, many therapists working with even thousands of clients over 20 some odd years. That's that's 20 years in, in social science research is huge, right? We look at longitudinal as six months. No, this is yeah, I see longitudinal studies that are like discharge two weeks and six months. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you have longitudinal studies, many therapists. Over the time of 20 years, those therapists' outcomes tended to decline. I don't mean they got way worse, but on average, they tended to decline. So Daryl Chow, a psychologist here in uh, Fremantle, Western Australia, he did a study. This was the American Psychological Association's MVP of 2015, the most valuable paper. So think about that, the APA, think about how much stuff comes out of the APA. This study was number one. What they found was it's not your level of qualification. It's not your years of experience. It's not your caseload, not your theoretical orientation, not anything that we think we value, not your age, gender identity, uh, cultural identity, any of that stuff. It was the amount of time these therapists spent watching recordings of their work evaluating their outcomes, doing things to deliberately practice getting better that made them more effective. So think about the things we do that we that we try to do to get better. We go to conferences, uh, we go to training, and then we go, yeah, we've implemented that. I feel more effective. You might feel more effective, but if you don't have data, you don't really know if you're getting better. Now, let me caveat that for a second. This doesn't mean you're not effective. Remember 1977, on average, therapy works and works really, really well. If anything, this should be our argument for everything. Therapy works really well, whether you're indoors or out. So if you want to come outside with me, let's go. Therapy works really well. On average, when you decline in effectiveness, you're not becoming a bad therapist. You're still probably in that average area. But I think just like a little bit lower than a little bit lower, just like I'm not as fast as I was last year. But if I deliberately practice to get faster, I could probably do it. And deliberate practice is not supervision. Again, there is no quantifiable correlation between clinical supervision and improved outcomes. That said, I think supervision is really important. So I'm not saying don't get supervision. Pick a supervisor you look up to, somebody you think has something that you don't have, and see if you can steal it from them. And also, side note, pick a therapist that if you ring them and you need their ear for five minutes, they're not going to charge you for five minutes of talking to you. Everyone hear that? Will has free five-minute crisis (laughs) consults. I'll put his number in the show notes. (laughs) So when we talk about getting better and deliberate practice, it's really about role plays, watching yourself work. Most Adventure and Daniel and I wrote about this in the last chapter of the Outdoor Therapies book. And we presented about it in Association of Experiential Education Northwest Council. Yes. Totally plugging that council because it's awesome. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, even though I'm born and raised in the East Coast, I'm a Northwest member. So, <laughs> heck yeah. Um, so, when we think about deliberate practice, it's actually practicing something. So, some ideas, some things you can do. Grab a friend who is not a therapist, 
Grab someone you like to go outdoors with who does not give a shit about social work, psychology, counseling, doesn't know what unconditional positive regard is and say, I've been working on doing a session like this. Are you willing to role play being a client for 15 minutes? If you feel uncomfortable doing that and you go and do it, congratulations, you're deliberately practicing something. If you feel deliberate practice is easy, newsflash, you're not practicing deliberately. It's about reaching the, the edge of our performance and focusing there. We call therapy practice, and we have an assumption that experience makes us better. Check this out. You, a comedian doesn't get better only by performing. A therapist doesn't get better only by seeing clients. Well, it's wild because I think about like, there's so many other areas where people just, if you told them this, they're like, yeah, coach me, show me. I mean, I, I like to rock climb and yes. I look at the way that people go through and train like finger strength, certain holds, certain movements, or I look at like a basketball player and they're like, I'm terrible at layups. I'm going to go do a hundred layups in a row and have someone watch me and tell me what I'm doing. And, and that's just so commonplace, but in therapy and adventure therapy or any of it, we seem like kind of nervous and vulnerable about that. Like, Oh, I mean, I don't want to talk. I, I'm effective because I've been doing it for a while and mm. no, the same thing. If I've like been playing guitar horribly for 30 years and never learned how to make a chord, right. I still need someone to tell me that sounds terrible. You need to hold your fingers like this. Mm -hmm. And, and think if you just Google deliberate practice, rock climbing, you will get thousands of results. You will have page after page teaching you. You will become a better climber just by sitting on a rock wall, but you will probably be an average climber. It's everything you do off the rock wall that will make you better. It's everything you do outside of the basketball game that will make you better. And this tends to be the case for, for therapy. So, one really neat thing, this would be a really fun thing to do, is to get together at a conference with everyone and really think about what are deliberate practice exercises we could do. Let's try it. I took part, I was a research participant in a study about difficult conversations in therapy. And so we watched a video of an of a actor playing a client. We watched the video and the person was very angry with their therapist, Right. And then we got a chance to write how we would respond to the therapist and blind raters rated how we did. Now I was in the control group, so I didn't see the feedback my super, the, the person would have given me. A week later, we had to do the same video and respond again. And a week later, same video respond again. Obviously the people who got feedback, who their words were looked at, they were given uh, constructive uh, feedback, what to do next time, their scores continued to rise, where I actually started to get worse at how I responded to the exact same person, <laughs> you know? And so think about all the little mistakes we make in a clinical interaction. And if no one has watched you made that mistake, you'll never catch it otherwise. You, I think of Tommy Caldwell, the, the rock climber, and uh, watching the Don Wall, and it goes through how he cut his finger off. And you, you, he talks about how he had to get callous over the new skin, how it healed. How he, he lost it. it and then, like, deliberately practice strengthening, I mean, that, that stub of a finger uh, to yeah. be able to utilize that rock climbing. And somehow he cut his finger off and got told he couldn't rock climb anymore and got better. Yeah. And that is, it's unbelievable. And so one of the things with deliberate practice though, is it is nerve wracking to have somebody watch you work. Uh, Stefan Natanchuk, my good friend has watched me work. Uh, Dr. Scott Miller has watched videos of me working. It's nerve wracking to share a video of you working with someone that you, that you look up to. Of course it is. It's nerve wracking playing music in front of someone I look up to. So you have to pick the right person. You have to pick someone who cares about your development, who's invested in you getting better. And also you can't drag a practice session out, right? If you watch and if you record a, a video, a session of your work, pick five minutes of that session. You think I, I could be better here. Take that five minutes to your, your coach, your supervisor, watch it together. 
see what they say. For the most part, and by the way, I, f- I have found this to be true. If you want to hate yourself, watch yourself work or listen to yourself on a podcast. But the other people that listen, you know, other people don't care about you as much as you care about you. So you're thinking, oh my gosh, they think I suck. They think I'm terrible. They're probably watching it like, oh, I bet you could only be 1% better, that it was 99% amazing. And you can just be a bit better by doing this little thing. And until we open ourselves up to that, what's going to happen is we're going to be automatic, which is when everybody quits going to the gym, when there's no more gains, when everyone stops playing guitar, because learning that guitar solo is too hard. So we need to just get to the edge of our performance and start making little incremental ways of getting better. And what it, what getting better is not, unfortunately, because this would be awesome, is buying a book and being like, I'm going to ask that question next time. Because the things that go wrong are typically so hard to find. You need someone to help you find it. Just like I'm, I am such an average rock climber and I was, I spent more time climbing as in my youth. I, I know what to do, but if I had someone who was belaying me, like, Will, hold on a second, look at the way you could push your hand like this or put, not look at that hold, not doing the climb for me, but actually teaching me something about my body posture or how close my core is to the wall. All that stuff could make a difference if I actually cared about becoming a better rock climber, which I don't. (laughs) You mean to tell me then that it doesn't matter and I can do adventure therapy with everyone and adventure therapy because of all this stuff we talked about is going to work. And there's ways that I can get better at it and make it work better. And I think you even said that if we do this feedback informed treatment and deliberate practice that that in and of itself makes adventure therapy an evidence-based practice. So this is, this is, this is amazing. And this is what, when I was diving into the literature coming out of the center for clinical excellence, which by the way, is the biggest kind of discussion board, social media platform of behavioral and mental health practitioners all around the world. When I started diving into this, we talk about outcome monitoring and outcomes are boring, right? It's numbers. It's, it's using a measure that maybe we don't think relates to the kind of work we do. Uh, there's, there's all these inherent limitations. Oh my gosh, it's going to be uncomfortable when I, uh, find out that I'm not as effective as I think I am. All these things that can happen simply using an outcome measure at the start of your session and alliance measure at the end feedback-informed treatment, as it's called, or the Partners for Change Outcome Monitoring System, PCOMS, that is in the National Database for Evidence-Based Programs and Practices. That's SAMHSA's National Registry. Now, Trump abolished that a few years ago. I don't know if it's still there, but that is the, the, that's the highest standard you can have an evidence-based practice ranked. Think about these outcomes just by doing that. I didn't tell you to ask the miracle question. Didn't tell you to go inside or out. Outcome measure at the start, session rating at the end. Use that data to inform your decision-making about the client. That is able, that has shown in randomized clinical trials to double client outcomes, reduce deterioration. That's the amount of clients who get worse while under the care of a therapist and also reduce dropout rates. That's why I think it's important that outdoor therapy gets recognized that it's on par with CBT. Otherwise, we're never going to get as the funding that we want. We're never going to get um, recognized by health insurance companies. But at the same time, if I'm a client of an adventure therapy program, and I know at the fingertips with measures that are free, my therapist could do an empirically supported treatment that has the chance to double the chance of my life getting better, I'd want them to do it. And so that's why I think therapists want to know about these things. And additionally, and I think I've had so many conversations with Ben Feynman about this from the Bad Therapy podcast. We live in a time where incredible social justice movements are happening. 
decolonization and, and taking into account different cultural worldviews, the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movements. Uh, we're, we're, we're taking cultural responsiveness uh, way more seriously than we ever have. An alliance rating and asking your client for their feedback in a way that invites them to, if we can set that up, and this is only done therapist to therapist, there's no script to do this. If we set up when we work with people, hey, I, I, have, I have some knowledge. I've got some, some shit, you know, I've got some shit degrees on the wall. I've been effective with people similar to you before. But listen, if there's anything I do that's off track, you can tell me. And it won't hurt my feelings. It won't mean I don't like you. Because I know there's no such thing as perfect. And no session is perfect. And I'm not interested in being the perfect therapist. I'm interested in being the perfect therapist for you. So here's a piece of paper that takes one minute to fill out. And please let me know what's missing. Because think of all the microaggressions that we could accidentally do to someone from a different culture, from someone from a different uh, orientation of any kind that maybe we miss. But if we set up that even though we have this power as the therapist, I'm only interested in you thinking I'm effective, you thinking your life is improving, that the therapy is effective. And I don't care if that's because, you know, um, <clears throat> something external to therapy. I just want to know your life's getting better. And I want you to know that your time here is valued, that you think this is important. Because one thing that will happen in adventure therapy, and I think this is sort of the next frontier of something we need to research, inherent to any outdoor therapy setting is the best antidepressants in the world. Now, I'm sort of changing my argument here from being less of being that we're all equally effective. I know one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, and, and, and even for me personally, right? I struggle to fall asleep. As you can tell uh, through this chat with Daniel, I overthink this shit and it's ridiculous, right? So when I lay down to go to bed, I better be freaking tired. But if I've just been doing research or reading a book I'm fascinated by, I will not fall asleep. My brain starts wandering. So I dilly-dally on my phone. All these things that are terrible self-care strategies, right? Think about when Facebook. I <laughs> Facebook. Think about going on expedition. I'm exercising every day, moving my body more than I'm sitting in this office. I'm eating incredibly well. Even though I eat mostly a plant-based diet, it's totally plant-based out there. And it's good food. And that's not propaganda for anybody else. Eat whatever you want. Just don't eat McDonald's. It's gross. Um, and then uh, I'm socializing with people, interacting with, with clients and other staff, and I'm falling asleep and I'm also learning new things. So our clients are going through something that, that those are incredible antidepressants, sleep, exercise, education, good diet, and socializing with other people, incredible antidepressants. So what we notice is clients who are very anxious at the start, who weren't sleeping, who were angry and frustrated with us. They start to feel better. That doesn't mean, though, that therapeutically, the work we're doing, the talk about substance misuse, the talk about self-harm is, is going in. It doesn't mean anything. So they could go, I feel good, and I'm sleeping, and my body routine is sort of reset. reset. All that stuff's important. That does not mean when they get home, their life is better. They can go back to a crap environment, and that's hard for us to control. We can't control those things very well. But imagine if while your client is feeling better, sleeping better, eating better, and we say, how are those groups we're running going for you? I don't care about that part. Well, I've noticed that you're happier. Yeah, I'm not at my crap environment. Imagine if we then asked the young person in residential care who doesn't want to be there, who has no trust in adults, Imagine then we say, well, I know that we are stuck here. What can we do to make this more impactful? Because I had young people I interviewed for my research said, hiking never made me want to contemplate my sins. But then we have programs that say hiking is a really good time for reflection. It wasn't for that kid. 
Why didn't anybody ask? So outcome monitoring is not only supported by the evidence, it's also a really good way to check our own biases. And so, but it's only in the way you implement it. You can't just print the measures and go fill this out. Take time to reflect on how you're gonna introduce it. What are you gonna do when someone says, that session was shit? What, how are you gonna respond? So that's why I think it's so important for adventure therapy because we can be tricked that a client is engaged when they start feeling better, but they're therapeutically checked out to, to what we're doing. I think we'll, we'll kind of finish it up there. Thanks so much, Will. This has been an awesome conversation. I think that you've kind of continued to shine your light on how this stuff can be accessible and usable for adventure therapy practitioners, wilderness therapy practitioners. And every time I hear you talk about this stuff, it just reminds me that this is like a supplement to make our feel better, where I think sometimes at first people can be off guard by it. But I, I think that I hear it. I'm like, yeah, this is really wonderful stuff and uh, great for the field. Thanks again. Thanks for sharing it today. Appreciate it. No, it's, as you can tell, I can get a, any opportunity I have to finger wag about it, I will take. So <laughs> thanks for that. And we will be, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, what we've decided to do just for um, our three podcast followers is we will. Uh, <laughs> I think there's four. Yeah, <laughs> we will uh, do this every now and then where maybe we unpack a new piece of research that's come out. And uh, in, in, a, in a few months time, after a few other podcasts we have lined up, we'll do a chat with Daniel about prevention and, and, and his, his work and his focus as well, because that again, um, just as a teaser is prevention is really the beginning of adventure therapy. And um, so it's so important. It's funny when you look at the, the really good history that Will White did, how adventure therapy and prevention through adventure therapy predate the existence of regular therapy as a whole. But yeah, we'll yeah. talk more about that later. Yeah. All right. Great to hang out, Daniel. Talk to you soon. Later. Later.